0: Welcome to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Stock
1: market, wealth, personal finance, value stocks. Invest in your life. Hello, Smart Money Tree Podcast listeners. Welcome to this week's show. My name is Kirk Chisholm, and I will be your host. So today we have Josh Ziegelbaum. How are you doing today, Josh? Kirk, I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Doing well. Josh, tell us a little bit about your background before we begin. I wanted to bring you on because you're going to talk about a topic that I'm extremely fascinated in. But Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background before we begin? I'm the director of investor relations for Legacy Group.
0: We're a private equity firm, boutique asset manager, focus on Latin America. I live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. My background is in private banking, studied economics at Rutgers University in New Jersey, worked as a private banker with Wells Fargo for about six years. That brought me down to sunny Florida in 2018. And I've been in private equity for the last three years.
1: So what was the draw for private equity? Why private equity as opposed to something else? I love
0: the interesting financial products, you know, that we can offer not us, but in the space, there's unique opportunities for investors that you wouldn't find in public markets, hence the word private, of course. Really cool chances for growth. I found that in the space, we could offer our clients things that they can't get everywhere else. So, in my experience at Wells Fargo, the portfolios that we were managing, you know, they can go down the street with a competitor and essentially have the same thing. So I like that that's not the case in private markets.
1: I was fascinated by the fact that you started a coffee company and you'd think, well, there's coffee companies everywhere. Why start a coffee company? There's so many of them around. And so why don't you kind of get to your thinking around why coffee? Green Coffee Company is our flagship portfolio company. That's
0: the one that you're mentioning here. So we founded the business in 2017. It was initially birthed as Somewhat of an alternative for syndicated real estate that investors participate in. So we made the product for investors that were looking for cash flow with real assets that were interested in the region of Colombia. The two partners at Legacy Group were living in Medellin at the time and saw opportunities for arbitrage and for strong investment returns. And that, with the desire of our investors to get exposure there, the seed funding round was born. And with that, we made the first farm acquisitions in 2018. We quickly realized that we were thinking a little small on the buy land, grow coffee, pay cash flow type of strategy. And we've grown this into an enterprise. Today, you know, we've scaled it over 6,000 acres and 7 million trees. We see in Colombia, it was really just an industry that was ripe for disruption. All smaller landholding families, antiquated processing facilities, lack of foreign investment, a heavy lack of investment and lack of innovation. So all that combined, we saw, you know, ways in which we could provide first world business tactics, bring in advanced technologies and build something special and revolutionize an industry.
1: We've had some investments in a coffee company in the past. And what's interesting is it seems to me that most countries have just what you're saying, small family farms, lack of foreign investment, lack of innovation. It's just kind of this. Small industry, but it's like one of the biggest commodities in the world. So, how do you kind of look at that and say, wow, we're just going to change everything in Colombia? Which I would think Colombia would be a pretty established producer of coffee. But what are some of the challenges you faced? Kind of what was the aha moment for you? Taking a step
0: back at Legacy Group, we believe that we can create meaningful financial returns for our investors, but also produce a positive social and environmental impact. In addition to being you know, antiquated, the people in the coffee industry in Colombia, they're not paid in a formal manner. It's very informal. People are typically paid cash without benefits. We don't like that, of course. We saw an uh, opportunity to change that. From an environmental perspective, tons of plastic is used, lots of water is wasted, and the typical practices. We saw ways in which we could change that as well. So, in addition to seeing where we could, Buy assets at distressed prices, do value add for our investors. We saw ways in which we could do value add from a social and environmental perspective as well. So it's sort of like a perfect storm. You know, coffee and Colombia are synonymous with one another. When you think of one, you think of the other in many cases. And we just saw, you know, all those things kind of aligning. We built a team, a management team of Colombian professionals. You know, we have a 25-year veteran of agriculture as our CEO and president. The former agronomist for Starbucks in Colombia is our advisor. So we really just built a powerhouse team around this thesis. You know, you couldn't disrupt an industry as significant as coffee is in Colombia with the amount of investment that we've deployed. It just would be impossible in the US. So we like that. And
1: that's kind of how we got going. So it sounds like impact investing is a big theme for you. What's the long term goal for this? You're talking about investing in Colombia. I don't know the capacity that you could grow in Colombia? I would imagine at some point you kind of scare the locals and they're like, hey, these guys are getting too big. But how does that kind of look long term for you guys? Like what's your vision with growing a company in a Latin American country?
0: From where we are today, we're at north of 6,500 acres and over 7 million coffee trees planted. We want to continue over the next couple of years to continue to buy farmland in Colombia. So the first pillar of our business strategy as we look towards a successful exit would be additional farm acquisitions. So that's in the area where we operate currently in the state of Antioquia and also in a different part of Colombia. The reason for that we want to expand outside of our current nexus is that we want year round production. There's a Q4 harvest where we operate in Antioquia. So we're right in the middle of it now where most of the coffee cherries are harvested and most of the revenues are realized in this part of the year. But in other parts of the country, in other parts of the world even, you know the harvest is at a different time depending on the microclimate in that area. So in a region that we're looking at, the coffee triangle, the region of Candio, there's a spring harvest. So we're looking to buy kind of duplicate what we've done already in Antioquia and do that in Candillo so we can have more stable revenue streams. And continue to build out processing facilities and really just replicate what we've already done because we already have the blueprints from what we've executed upon so far. Beyond that first pillar, there's a couple other things we want to build out as we look towards an exit. Next would be a U.S.-based roaster. So we're targeting in the next uh, year and a half uh, to have a U.S.-based roaster online. Uh, We're targeting Florida and Texas as those markets. The reason for this is that the business model today is wholesale unroasted coffee or green coffee. So we sell containers internationally and throughout Colombia farm direct coffee from our farms in Colombia. We can make significantly more margin per pound if instead of selling it green and unroasted, we take it through our US-based roaster, still focus on a wholesale B2B format, but sell roasted coffee at scale. We expect in 2026, we could do over 30 million pounds of roasted coffee per year. Uh, through our U.S.-based facility, and transition entirely from a green coffee model to a roasted coffee model. The next piece that we want to do in a similar time frame is build out a distillery at our farms in Colombia. The reason for that is that 80% of the coffee cherry is waste. It's discarded, typically. It's mucilage, skin, and pulp. The coffee bean that we drink and know is only 20% of the actual cherry, and it's used for coffee that's sold as a commodity. So with that waste, uh, we're conducting research and development. We've ordered distillery equipment so we could turn that waste into ethanol and then other spirit products. So we're looking to birth an entire new revenue stream from the waste of coffee production. With those acquisitions, with the U.S. roaster build-out, and with the byproduct initiative, we expect that the company will be in a position for a sale or an IPO in 2026. That's our medium term business strategy and what we're laying out for our investors today.
1: So are there any other companies doing like distilling the waste from the coffee cherry? Because I've never heard of such thing. And it's interesting to me that that could be a thing. It does exist.
0: There are companies that make coffee cherry vodka. There's a company out of New York that we're aware of. They don't own the farms, though. So there's no one that's like that we're aware of. That's a producer of coffee at scale, at origin, who's doing this. The use of coffee byproducts for certain products is something that's known in the market for certain cosmetics or food and beverage products or even vodka. It does exist, but no one's doing it at the scale in which we're talking about doing and doing it at the facilities. There's like a very short shelf life of the byproduct waste before it starts fermenting on its own. So having the facilities with all the waste spitting off and going right into a distillery, we don't know anyone that's doing that to the capacity that we're talking about.
1: So how does that taste? Is that something that would be appealing to people? Because I've never tasted it, so I don't know. It could taste just like regular vodka. One question that kind of comes to mind, because I know that from my experience with the other company, a lot of the farms that they acquire the green beans from, how shall I put it? They're squeezed on a lot of different angles and they have co ops in a lot of these areas. They have to borrow money to get the farm done. So they're constantly in this negative cycle that they can't get out of. And, you know, they're not paid all that much. So if you're looking at impact investing, like, how would you look at a situation like that and fix it? We actually have a coffee cherry buying program.
0: In addition to what we do at our farms where we produce our own coffee and we run it through our facilities, we have enough capacity in our processing facilities, in our wet mill to process additional cherries from local neighboring farmers. So we set up a hub in Antioquia. It's a buying point. We update the price based on market and, and we pay fair prices for high quality coffee cherries from local farmers. We've created a safe outlet for them to come in, get paid, and you know, we pay them into bank accounts or with check in a timely manner, not in the way in which you're saying, where they can get paid on delivery in this case. And people love it. We actually have a whole video on this on our YouTube channel on the Coffee Cherry Buying Program and the impact that we're having in our community.
1: So another thing that cropped up in a lot of my conversations prior is equality. From what I've heard, a lot of the bigger companies They don't have the capacity to deal with top quality because the volumes are so high that they just have to take whatever's there. And so a lot of them have questionable quality in terms of the coffee beans. So, how do you manage that quality? So, we professionally sort the coffee cherries in our
0: facilities. When people come in with cherries to sell to us that we're not familiar with, we'll carefully analyze them, we'll do tests, we'll do cuppings. There are coffee professionals on site. That are handling the buying process when it comes to third party to make sure that it meets our quality standards. We focus on a specialty coffee product. So, with the Specialty Coffee Association, there's a rating scale. Based on that scale, you can determine if you have commodity, specialty, ultra premium. We're in like the 84 to 87 range on the SCA scale, which is a high quality premium coffee that you could sell above commodity. But we analyze it at site, at our facilities, and then even with the batch, if there's certain cherries that are not. To the same standard as others, they're sorted out in the process before we bring it all the way down to a green bean.
1: And I know another issue that came up just going down the impact approach here. Another issue that came up is a lot of these farms are widely dispersed and they don't necessarily have access to main infrastructure. So, like in Brazil, you might be in the forest somewhere. There's no way they can get that upriver all that easily. So, you know, a lot of these farmers just never get access to the markets because the infrastructure is not there. So, how do you deal with that aspect when it comes to coffee? That's definitely an issue in
0: Colombia access to roads, access to infrastructure where you could process the cherries, where you could sell them. That's a concern And, and one in which we're solving, at least in the region where we operate. So, we build roads where we need them, we're buying farms in Consolidated areas and we're building a next building them around and operating nexus. So we'll have the facility that we process the cherries. We build that in like a hub in the center of a farming group. So we basically tailor the acquisitions and all the facilities to our specific needs, and we'll build roads when necessary. There's also like aqueducts, which can transfer cherries from maybe one mountain to literally another one because it grows on mountains in the region in which we operate, farmers or pickers can take the cherries that they picked for the day or part of the day. They could pour it in an aqueduct. It could transport it to another part of the topography there. So that's also a method that they use in Colombia to transport cherries. A lot of it's pretty old school. You know, there's people on horses going up mountain. It's all hand picked. But once they're off the mountain and they have the cherries, you know, there's roads and infrastructure in place in order to cart the quantities that we need to our facilities.
1: Juan Valdez and his mule. What was that coffee company as a kid that they had? I think it was Juan Valdez. He had this mule and he was pulling his coffee. I forget who that was, but I remember it visually. That is real. (laughs) So you went in, you created this company, you had an idea. Let's talk about kind of how you went about this. I think it's instructive for our listeners to kind of understand how you'd think about starting a company like this. Like, what are some of the big issues that you addressed? And some of the challenges, and then how did you necessarily address some of them, the ones you could address?
0: It's important to know like, this isn't something that could easily be replicated by someone. You have to have relationships with farmers, with landholding families. All of these purchases that we've made, all the acquisitions to get up to the landholdings we have, it's all off market. There's no MLS like there is in the US where you can search. Properties for sale, or there's no like co star for commercial where you could find all of the available farmland in Antioquia and then take your pick. Like it's very much relationship driven. So we'll have ongoing conversations with landholding families for years in certain cases, months in other cases. We speak in person. So you have to go out and negotiate with these people, speak to their uncles, so their cousins, brothers. Like it's a whole production in certain cases and it's very much relationship based. So you need to have. Who's on the ground in order to execute on something like this. And we have just that through Legacy Group and through Green Coffee Company. As I mentioned, the two partners at Legacy Group live in Medellin, where our operations are, and you know our management team that we've hired on the ground at the facilities, they're very much Colombian. So we have relationships that we've built up over years. We've built a reputation of the go-to buyer in the region that we're in. So at this point, people are coming to us with offers of, hey, I have... X amount of land, there's this many trees on it. I want this much, or can you make me an offer? We really just grown to that over time. You know, it's taken a while to get to that point. But in order to execute on something like this, you have to be on the ground. You have to understand the local market. Things work a bit quite differently than they would here in the US. So, you know, if someone is looking to do something like this in another country, you have to live there or have senior people living there, at least in my opinion, to be successful. This isn't something that you could do from an office in New York and hop on a video call once a week and kind of tell the guys what to do. Like you have to be there and very much understand the local market. It's also relationship driven, not just with the acquisitions, but in government as well and with key figures when you need to get things done. So we built great relationships with. The governor with the mayor. We had an inauguration event with senators and Congress people. You know we're very much known and respected in the industry. We're the largest employer in the town in which we operate. Things move slower in Colombia than they would in the U.S. So you need to understand that and navigate it. So a lot goes into this. A lot of thought and calculation from both acquisitions and operations. But that's a bit of like an overview of how we were able to um, get things done at Green Coffee Company.
1: It sounds like having those relationships is kind of what makes things move. I mean, you hear the stories about when I was a kid where they had drug problems. And I know Colombia has come a long way since then. I have a lot of friends who live there and they say it's like one of the best places. It's really safe. But how do you kind of get by? Like, you know, you live in the U.S., you know, the U.S., but how do you kind of look at another country and say, all right, I'm just gonna go work there. There's obviously cultural things that have to happen, like you said, relationship driven, like all these differences that are different from the US. So how do you kind of come to the decision, hey, like I'm gonna go do this, even though it's extremely different in so many different ways that I may not even be aware of at the moment.
0: And asset manager such as us who's looking at markets, you know, they really need to travel. I would recommend to travel the world and look at different markets and spend some time there, see how things operate in your opinion, look around. I mean, it sounds a bit cliche, but we were the partners at Legacy Group. We're literally traveling. One ended up in Medellin in his travels. He saw so much opportunity there that he left his job at PwC, Price Coopers and Big 4 accounting firm great career and kind of gave up everything to start the business down there because he saw such ripe opportunities for arbitrage, such a lack of almost transparency in the market and high amounts of growth potential at least, you know a lot of that's been realized now. There's also things like exchange rate differentials that you can look at. So a market such as Colombia, we're at like 5,000 to 1 exchange rate, Colombian peso per US dollar. When we started this project, it was under 2,500 to 1. What that means is our buying power has doubled in five years time. Every dollar invested in the business by our investors can buy twice as many assets as it was able to just a number of years ago. So we couldn't forecast that. but there's the exchange rate piece as well. So if you go to a market and you see, wow, the real estate is half the price of it is in the US, but I can grow a commodity that's sold in dollars, such as coffee, that creates a unique effect where there's arbitrage on what you could buy. You know, the commodity being sold in USD makes a big difference. You know, we're bringing investment in dollars, so that stretches further. There's a lot of different factors, you know, the political climate is another of course. Colombia, you mentioned there were some issues a number of years ago. That's very much been cleaned up since then. You know, it's a democratic, open for business country. You know, it's very much capitalistic and we've seen that, you know, a lot of support on foreign investment coming in and on making things happen in the industry, but a lot of factors to look at, I would say, for investors to consider.
1: I mean, obviously, this is a business, but you also mentioned farmland a few times. So can you talk about how you're looking at an investment as a company, including farmland? Because farmland itself is an investment. You're kind of combining the two. Can you talk about the the calculus you look at when you include farmland as part of the investment? The company itself
0: is balance sheet heavy, like it's real asset back. So as capital comes into the business, we use it to buy farmland and build processing facilities, which is one of the reasons investors love this, of course, is because it's real asset-backed. In terms of our calculation on how we go about that and what we look for when we diligence different farms, you know, we'll look at things like cost per acre and what we typically see in the region. We look to see if there is already existing coffee trees on the farmland or if they all need to be planted. If there is coffee, how built out is it? What stage in its production cycle are we at? How much value add is needed to get it to full capacity? And how much time will it take in order to make that happen? We'll run an analysis on payback period. So, if we invest X, how many years will it take to recoup that investment in terms of production expected on that particular parcel? So, there's a careful analysis in that regard. And what's our payback period? What do we typically pay? How much work needs to go into stabilizing the land? Is it in a region that makes sense for us? Can we get access to our operating nexus in order to process? Are there roads? Kind of things of that nature is what we live for.
1: Yeah, I know to me, farmland is kind of one of those assets right now that's going to do really well in the next decade, just based on macro factors going on. And and the markets have changed quite a bit in the last 12 months, although I think they'll continue to change. So It's interesting that this is part of the investment itself. Now, what are some of the risks? If you're looking at an investment like this, obviously, you're taking a big leap unless you know the area and you're from the area. What are some of the risks involved with this? How do you do risk management on an investment like this? The largest
0: risk in any agricultural-related investment would be weather, in our opinion. So you can mitigate that as much as you can attempt to, but you can't reduce that risk to zero for weather. So it can affect a given harvest in a particular year or in a number of years, and it could take your revenue model, kind of flip it or skew it to be different than you expect. When you compare that to, let's call it a piece of commercial real estate, you can make a reasonable expectation as to what rents will increase at, at what rate, you know, at what particular occupancy rate you need to get at in order to hit your target. Bit more black and white when it comes to agriculture. There's that major variability of weather or mother nature that affects, you know, a given harvest. So that's something that we could mitigate with advanced screening technology. So we'll monitor weather patterns, humidity, amount of rain that's expected, amount of rain that already happened, around the sunlight that's hitting the certain plants. And then we could be proactive in our methods. So if they're is shade that needs to be made in order to allow plants to grow better. We analyze that if there's certain chemicals that need to be added in order to enhance production, we'll look at that as long as it's sustainable, of course. So different sensory equipment is on the farms through a partner of ours called X Farms. And we have a whole control room that monitors everything that's going on at the farm level. I'd say another You know, a risk that people point to sometimes is political risk when you're investing outside of the U.S. We very much have strong relationships locally, as I already spoke about. We're also a member of CEA Columbia, which is the Council for American Enterprises doing business there. So we sit at the same table as the likes of other U.S. multinational corporations such as Amazon, GE, Coca-Cola. We get information from the embassy on kind of what's going on and what's expected in the region. There's always a timeline risk when it comes to private investments. So an investment such as ours or or any other where there's forecasting an IPO or sale of the company in a particular year, we very much think that we're in a position to achieve that and that we don't have a reason to believe that we won't hit our target. But there's always a timeline risk when it comes to private equity style investments, whether it's an apartment building or something as ours. You can't always forecast where rates are going to be, if it's a refinance or a commercial deal, or in our case, what market sentiment will look like in 2026. Everyone seems to think, or the experts seem to think, that at the end of 2024 or in that period, we'll kind of be at the tail end of this recessionary period. What if that's not the case? So that's certainly a risk. It's an outside factor, you know, where expecting a certain valuation at exit we believe we've been conservative in that analysis but it's of course subject to market appetite at that particular point in time so i would point to that as another risk as well
1: in terms of the financial aspect you're going in you're thinking hey i'm going to start this company how do you look at the financial aspect you're kind of ballparking a lot of this you're in a new area you know new business you know, I'd say if you were doing this coffee companies for years and you probably know this stuff, but as a new investor in a new segment, how do you look at putting together the financials and kind of ballparking them? And can you talk a little bit about that? So if we think of using the coffee company as an
0: example, and if you're someone that's never bought farmland or never invested in coffee, you're never invested in Colombia. you need to find people who have and ask them the right questions, such as, how much coffee can be produced on this land, how much could it sell for, right? So you need to understand like, all right, if I bought this, what's my expected revenue? What's my CapEx? What do I have to invest in additionally besides the acquisition to stabilize it? What's the mechanism in which you're going to sell the product? And in our case, we have our own facilities. If, If you had to sell it to just someone else or run it through their facility... You just need to run a full analysis on what your costs are going to be, what the expected revenues would be to kind of further understand like, okay, should I be deploying here? What makes this piece of land better than the one next door? You can analyze payback periods on both expected revenues and profitability in order to back into that. Once you've been doing it for some time, you can use historical data from your own Farms or your own assets, you know, maybe this is a different asset altogether. You could use your historical data and then see, like, okay, well, typically I need to invest this much after in this scenario. Typically, our harvest is this much per acre. What does that look like? And then when you're building out financial models for investors, you need to take all this into consideration. So, where do we see revenues going if we deploy the capital in the manner that we're telling you? And then where do we expect profitability to be. So we have a CFO in-house in our case, but I would encourage someone to consult with a professional who does financial modeling and forecasting. Definitely a team effort, put it that way. And you need to build out that team, whether it's acquisitions or the analysts or kind of the whole nine there. I know that's kind of touching on it a bit loosely, but A lot goes into it. And if you don't know the answers, someone else does. So I would encourage someone, if you're operating in a space that's new to you, to seek out those who are successful, take them out, spend time with them, try and pick their brain and see if you can get the answers you need to be successful.
1: I mean, you went into a new area where there were no established players, so to speak, everyone in these small family farms. So how do you kind of learn that. I mean, you guessing or like how are you figuring that out if you're literally like the first person in a space? Let me give you a background on the two partners at
0: the firm, Cole Shepard and Adam Jason. So before Cole founded the company, I mentioned he was at PricewaterhouseCoopers. He was doing international mergers and acquisitions, so he was representing insurance companies, handling large transactions throughout Asia, throughout Bermuda, a very kind of decorated career in M&A so he had hands-on experience in advising on certain transactions on witnessing companies kind of snowball through acquisitions how they thought about going about them diligencing running models you know Cole's background is in mergers and acquisitions so even though he never did it in coffee in colombia he has a robust background in executing on that the other partner at the firm adam jason full career as a corporate attorney he was an SEC attorney in the U.S., representing investment banks, doing public and private debt and equity issuances. So we have experience in that's applicable from professional services careers that we're able to use as we figure this all out, I'd say, right? So there was no blueprint. You're right. We couldn't just come in and say, oh, who's doing this? How do we do it? But we took the professional experience that we had in financial services, in legal services, and our Personal experience, being on the ground there and understanding how the market works, to kind of build this thesis. A lot of it was done through trial and error. In certain cases, if we bought a farm and we saw that things could be done differently, next time we would do it differently. So, a bit of trial and error as well. You can't get all the answers if it's something that hasn't been done before. I would say.
1: So you have to kind of ballpark some of this based on best guess, I would imagine. Yes,
0: if it hasn't been done,
1: of course, there's no other way. I know every business is different, but what ratios are important to your business? Like if you're tracking like five numbers, you know, in your business, like what are the most important metrics for you to track in your business to be on top of it? Acreage.
0: So number of acres, number of coffee trees, revenue, net income. Those are very important to us. Expected exit multiple. So we can forecast where we expect profitability to be in the future, and then back into an exit valuation or suggested exit valuation. So just to recap, number of acres, number of trees, revenue, profitability, and forecasted exit multiple, I'd say are the five important to us as we model this out and drive the business forward for our investors.
1: So looking at the exit, how is that multiple evaluated are they looking at capacity trees revenues how is that typically analyzed
0: in our current financial model in our series c presentation it is a price earnings multiple so we've backed into where we expect revenue to be in 2026 based on all the verticals we're building out where we expect to deploy funds so we expect to do 266 million in revenue in 2026 Produced sixty million dollars in net income on that, and we applied a multiple of twenty to that sixty million, which is how we backed into an expected exit valuation of one point two billion dollars. We're using a PE multiple, so a multiple of earnings. Uh, the twenty is a historic multiple of the S and P five hundred. Being a smaller cap company, you know, comparing it to maybe the Russell two thousand would be slightly more appropriate. The valuations tend to be richer north of 50. But we wanted to be conservative in our set of assumptions. And we use the historic S&P 500 multiple, which isn't what companies see in an IPO exit. Usually, you know, we're talking about blue chip, mature companies in the S&P. But that's how we calculated our expected exit valuation of 1.2 billion is 20 times 60 million in net income expected in 2026.
1: Well, in the interest of time, we got to wrap it up here, but any final thoughts from you, things we missed and where can people learn more about you and your company? We didn't talk too much about the,
0: I guess, investment structure, but it's a US investment structure, it's open to accredited investors. We have a $100,000 minimum investment. We're currently in the Series C funding round for the Green Coffee Company. Proceeds are used towards the additional farm acquisitions that I mentioned the build-out of the US-based roaster and the build-out of the distillery in Colombia. We're forecasting a 64% IRR for investors through 2026 and 11X net equity multiple on invested capital. So definitely a very rich return profile forecasted for our investors. It's a real asset business, balance sheet heavy. We've grown tremendously over the last couple of years. I encourage you to reach out to me if you want are interested in learning more or investing with us. You can find us on our website at legacy-group.co, or you could send us an email at investor.relations at legacy-group.co.
1: I'd love to get in touch with you. Is inflation getting you down? Do you feel like your money is worth less every time you open your wallet? Is shrinkflation frustrating you at the grocery store? Well, I have an answer for you. We're giving away free money. That's right. I said it: free money. I feel like I'm not doing my job to create inflation. Why does the government get to have all the fun? What can be better at increasing inflation than giving away free money? No, I'm not an employee of the Federal Reserve. And no, I'm not an employee of the US government. And no, I am definitely not printing it myself, but it is free. What more could you ask? Well, you might ask, is the money real? Well, yes, it is. It's totally real. I'm holding it in my hands right now. See? Oh. Wait, actually, this is a podcast. You really can't see me. Well, either way, I'm holding it in my hands right now, and I want to give it to you. If you want some free money, please go to moneytreepodcast.com forward slash free money. Follow the instructions, and I'll mail some to you. Enjoy your free money today. I'm not with the Federal Reserve, so I only have a limited supply. This offer is good until I run out. Go to moneytreepodcast.com forward slash free money today to get your free money. All right. Well, that was a great interview with Josh. Really appreciate him coming on the show. Now we're into the panel portion of the show. We have our very own Barb Friedberg. Hey, Barb.
2: Hi. Hello, everybody. Happy 2023.
1: We're taping this just after Christmas and Hanukkah, so... We're all just sitting here talking about the gifts that we got and the fun that we had over the holidays. So hopefully everybody else did, but you're all listening to this in the middle of February. So you're not going to really care.
2: (laughs) All that's left are the bills.
1: Yeah. I actually just got a text from Doug. He said he hurt his elbow playing tennis, which is maybe the problem because he's in Minnesota playing tennis. I mean, he plays tennis in Minnesota. (laughs) Let's hope he
2: was playing indoors, but anyhow.
1: Wish him all the best. So Barb, what were your thoughts from the interview?
2: You know, although I'm not a coffee investor and know absolutely nothing about that alternative asset class, it's always interesting to learn about the process that people go through in, number one, starting a business, and number two, marketing it to investors. So I think, you know, it was interesting. And it sounded like they have their feet on the ground, their heads on their shoulders and are really doing the homework and doing what they need to do to be successful in that business. And for investors who are interested in alternative investments, that's an example of an alternative investment. So what about you, Kirk? Thoughts on, you know, is that something that you or your clients invest in?
1: For those of you who know me, I love alternative investments. We Our firm specializes in alternative investments held in retirement accounts. So if you wanted to buy a horse or a house or gold or fishing rights or private business inside of your IRA or 401k, we can help you do that. That's what we are good at. Earlier in my career, we did mostly traditional investments because that's what the industry had and that's what the industry offered. And that's what we knew. And the industry is built around that. But what we realized is there are a lot of people out there who are never touching stocks or mutual funds because it's not what they know. They're real estate investors. They only know real estate. So why invest in a mutual fund? To me, that never made sense. Invest in what you know, as Peter Lynch said. So there are a lot of people out there who are interested in that and no one else is helping them in advising them in that capacity. So that's why we do what we do. So I love alternatives in part because there are some really great advantages with alternatives that you don't have with traditional markets. But unfortunately, you need to understand to work those advantages or else they're not advantages they can be disadvantages i'll give you an example you could buy a reit on the public trade markets there's tons of them out there you can go buy one and in a normal market you'll get a yield and it'll go up or down depending on how the cash flow is doing how the company's growing and this and that but when you get into a recession they go down like everything else for some reasons because of the company itself and sometimes it's because. The market is selling off and everything goes down. So sometimes the prices are rational, sometimes they're not. But the only times you can get a deal is if the market misprices it, which is highly unlikely this day and age because there's so many smart people with computers and those mispricings don't happen that often, or a recession, which everything sells off, which case you better have a lot of cash, which is why we've been talking about cash for last year, which those of you who are listening, hopefully you took advantage of that and are in cash and didn't lose as much as everyone else. But if you look at that as an investment, you know you can buy cheap during a recession, assuming that it's priced right right? and you're getting a deal. But you can assume for more or less, for all intents and purposes, that the market is properly pricing it in the publicly traded markets. But in the alternative side, those assets are illiquid, which means that they're not readily sellable at any given time. So let's say you own your home. You own your home you live in, and you want to go sell it. Depending on where you live and market conditions, it might take you a day. Last year, it probably took you a day to sell your home, or it could take you a few years. It depends on the market conditions, depends on your price, depends on a lot of things. But it's not readily liquid. So back in 2010, you couldn't sell your home very easily unless you wanted to give it at a big discount, which case you can always sell something at a big discount, which is where I'm going with this. So if you have an illiquid investment, you have an advantage and a disadvantage. If you're trying to sell it in a market that is not forgiving, like we're in now, it's going to be harder to sell, which means you're going to have to lower your price more than you wanted to in order to find a buyer. So, that's not to your advantage to sell in a bad market. But if you have a pile of cash and you're looking for something to invest in, you could find some great deals for people who have to sell, not that they want to sell, but have to sell. So, right now, I would argue that even though interest rates have come off the seven and a half percent down to six and a quarter, things have come off quite a bit. So, you're probably looking at a 35 to 40% drop in real estate from the peak in order for it to be properly priced. So if somebody needed to sell and the only way they could sell is drop the price 30% and then they could find a buyer, well, maybe that's a good deal. Maybe it's not. But as a buyer, you can make that decision because you have somebody who needs to sell who's willing to discount their asset because they can, right? Because they need to sell and the buyer is just saying, all right, I'll take 30% discount. And if you sell it to me, I'll buy it. If not, I'll go walk away and find someone else who'll do that. So the advantage of real estate in illiquidity, and this happened in 2008, there were a lot of non-traded REITs, which are basically publicly traded REITs, but they're private. So they're mostly private placement, which means you can buy them, but when you go to sell them, they're not liquid. So in 2008, you could buy those some of those for 20 or 30 cents in the dollar. Imagine getting real estate for 20 or 30 cents in the dollar that prior would have been 100 cents in the dollar. But because people needed to sell because they didn't have any money, this is their only option. So if you have cash, this is the advantage of the illiquidity advantage is if you're patient. And this is why I've been telling all the listeners here, cash is your friend. Cash is king. If you have cash or nobody else does, then you can walk around like a kid in a candy store, just buying as much stuff as you want because it's on sale because no one else has cash and you do. So I love alternatives And that's one of the main, there are other reasons, but that's one of the main reasons that I love them is that if you understand how they work, you can really take advantage of them. And we're going to see this too, private equity, venture capital. We're going to see a ton of this if we go into recession for the next few years. So one of the other things I like about alternatives, and then we're going to get into some questions here for Barb, because I know she's invested outside the market too, is with alternatives, you also have fewer buyers and sellers. So the reasons you have liquidity in the public trade markets because you have a lot of buyers and sellers, but you may not have 100 buyers of your potential property you're looking to sell. You may have one, you may have zero. It applies to every alternative asset. You have to go find somebody who wants to buy it. You don't just push a button on your keyboard and find a buyer. You might have to go out and find one, dig one up. You might have to go talk to people. And that's a lot of work. Is it worth it? It could be it depends on your asset it depends why you own it do you want it for cash flow do you want it for appreciation these are all important questions you need to understand i love alternatives on the other side of it there's some challenges and if you don't understand how to work those challenges or what you're signing up for you know you could be in for you know a big headache barb i mean from the interview we obviously talked a lot about coffee and as you can tell i love coffee as an investment if it's done right everyone loves coffee and it's funny because i don't even drink it and i still think it's a great investment so but uh that's another story so when you're looking at investments like this listening to josh talk about it like how does this rub you when you're thinking about alternatives investing outside the market just what's kind of your first impression from listening to the interview is this something that's appealing or not appealing or how are you thinking about it
2: As an investor, you have to know who you are. You have to know how much time and energy you want to put into investing and how much diversification you want and how much you are committed to trying to beat the markets. Because over time, traditional investments, which include stocks, bonds, and cash, have given you a very decent return over 100 years. You could earn an average of 9-ish percent investing in the U.S. stock market. You could earn roughly 5% on the bond market. And cash, well, you know, barring the prior 10 years, you could get a couple of percent on cash too. So investors can be perfectly fine ignoring alternative assets. But there are many of us out there who go, well, you know, that's great. I want stocks, bonds, and cash, but I also want to try and beat the market a little. Or I'm interested in other spheres that are less correlated with my own investment in stocks, bonds, and cash. And so I'm going to delve into alternatives. And what you have to be prepared to do is do a lot of research. Because the way you get access to an alternative, for example, let's say you want to invest in debt, not bond debt, but peer to peer debt. There are tons of companies that will enable you to invest in a whole variety of different types of debt, promising you can get eight, nine, 10% return. And you think, Hey, that's cool. Why not? Greater default risk. You have to vet the platform. Many of these peer-to-peer debt platforms have closed. So to sum up, there's more risk in- investing in alternatives. There's also a potential for greater rewards, but the risk is you don't know who you're investing with. You don't know their qualifications. You don't know if they are a good manager because when you invest in alternatives, you'll typically invest in either a private equity fund, a private real estate fund. Today, there are a lot of crowdfunding apps out there that promise to give you access to venture capital and private equity, for you know, small amounts of money, but you really have to know, there's tons of people out there that are starting these funds that don't have experience. I mean, all you have to do is look at the recent FXT debacle where Sam Bankman freed, he was a crypto genius. And I would actually put crypto in an alternative class. It's certainly not a typical investment. It's actually, many would say, not an investment at all because it has nothing backing it. But
1: neither does the dollar, Barb.
2: (sighs) Okay, but you've got a lot more people (laughs) with confidence in the dollar than you do with confidence in crypto.
1: We could debate that on a different show, Barb. I think that's a debate. We'll save that for
2: later. Some people would say
1: math backs crypto, and that's the backing of it. That's the argument that I hear from my crypto friends.
2: We can get into this later, (laughs) Kirk, because you know me, I always love a good fight. But what was I talking about? Oh, the risks. So as Kirk mentioned, alternative investments are less liquid. By and large, many times you're going to lock up your money for five or 10 years, that's great if you end up getting a, you know, a 30, 40 percent average annualized return. It's not so great if you want to sell and you need the cash. You really have to vet the managers. And that's where I get into personally a little bit of trouble, because I am a little hesitant to invest with someone that I really don't know well and who I don't know their track record well. And not only do you have to believe what they have written, because everybody's got their stuff online. And is it true? Is it not true? You can put anything online. So that, in my personal view, is one of the most scariest things of investing in alternative funds. Peer-to-peer, higher returns, maybe. Lockups. Depends. So, like I said, summary, you can do fine with stock bonds and cash. If you want to take some of your money and you want to delve into alternatives, you want to make sure that you do your homework. Don't go on, my brother in law, Joe, said this is a good investment. So, let me sign up. You have to be prepared to sit down with those documents. And oh, one more thing about alternatives they don't have the type of oversight they're not as regulated as our typical stock bond and cash markets. So that's my wrap up, Kirk.
1: I wanted to talk to you some about something you were talking about Barb which is bonds or fixed income investments. When you look at alternatives, there are a lot of those too and that's actually one of my favorite is looking at we look at private mortgages or private notes because they're simple. If you're investing in a piece of real estate, it's a business. As Barb knows, I mean, Barb used to own a lot of real estate and it's a business. It's not a passive investment. There's nothing passive about it. You're pretty active. But if you look at a note, you get all the benefits of, well, not all the benefits of real estate. You get some of the benefits of real estate and it's backed by a mortgage and you're getting a fixed rate of return, which in many cases could be higher than you would get on the property. I personally like it and you don't have to fix toilets, no tenants and toilets. You basically collect your interest payment every month, and that's it.
2: But how do you buy those? Tell our listeners, where can you get those? Let's say I hear you, and I'm very familiar with notes as well. Tell our listeners, where can they buy those with the assurance that it's a legit operation?
1: It's a good question. There's no assurances. It's not like a stock where you said, oh, the SEC has vetted this company, and even then, The SEC is not vetting the company. They're just saying, hey, they've met our standard. This doesn't mean we approve of them. It just means we've met our standard of filling out these forms and these other forms and these other forms. It doesn't necessarily make it a good investment. I think we all know the story of WorldCom, Enron, (laughs) Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns. were all legitimate companies that end up going bankrupt. If you look at these investments, it's like buying a piece of real estate. So you buy a piece of real estate, you have to do a title search. Actually, you don't have to do anything. You can just have somebody sign the document, sign the deed over to you for money. But what we traditionally go through is we go through this process, right? You go through an offer, you go through a PNS, you go through all this process to work through all of this document. There's a lot of documentation that's necessary. And one of those is a title search to make sure that the seller actually owns the property. If I just said, "Hey, you want to buy this property from me for like a hundred dollars?" You'd be like, "Yeah, of course I want to buy it for a hundred dollars." And you give me the hundred dollars, you find out I don't own the property. I've heard a lot of stories similar to that. One funny story: a guy was telling me how he was renting property. It was a loft building. You know, it was an ad in the paper and said, "Oh, you can rent this loft for a thousand dollars a month." And it was normally like you know fifteen or two thousand a month or something like that. And he said, "Wow, that's a great deal." So he did it with a few of his buddies, and he rented a loft. And he thought it was odd because he had to drop the rent check in the mailbox every month and somebody would pick it up. Well, one month he dropped it in there and nobody picked it up. And then come to find out that the person who he'd been paying didn't actually own the property. It was like abandoned. I don't know if it was technically abandoned, but basically it was kind of like an abandoned property. Like nobody was maintaining it. It was, it's not like the lofts we see nowadays in Tribeca. This is like a true like industrial loft. Anyway, the point was, is they didn't own it. The guy was just basically scamming people for checks, saying he was renting it out for somebody to own. So it always makes sense to do that kind of research, and most people don't, because no one's told you had to. But with private notes, it's a legitimate process. You're basically lending money to somebody off a piece of real estate. You're putting that debt, and you're backing it by real estate. So you go to the... I mean, I don't do this. The attorneys do it. But you basically put a note, attach it to the piece of property, the registry of deeds. So if anyone tries to sell the property, they can't without paying me off because this is at the Registry of Deeds, so it is a clear title and everything is above board. That's another reason I like these, is because you have the Registry of Deeds as a way to check. So if I was to loan you money off of MRI equipment, medical equipment, I don't know that you own that, and maybe there's some way to check that. But basically, for most stuff, if you were to loan it off equipment or a car or whatever, there's different systems real estate is the best system but if you were to loan money without any backing where do you put that now there are places but the point is is it's harder to find this stuff out so when we're loaning money we actually have developed relationships with certain people that we know we've worked with for like 10 20 years and we know them we know the risks they take we know how they do business we trust them because we've done business with them for a long time They don't send us garbage and we don't take garbage. So it's really a good fit. And they're honest with us. They'll tell us, no, this isn't a good deal. This is a good deal. For the last two years, they haven't done any deals because there's no good deals to be had. They're just not out there. Everything's too expensive. But for most people, if you wanted to find one of these, you would have to find a marketplace. There's sometimes there are marketplaces of people that are selling these things. So what they'll do is they'll go create a note They'll sell it and they'll try to make a few bucks on it. And however they're selling it, I don't want to get into it here. It's a lot talking about this. And we have had guests on that talk about this. But there's this whole process of how you price it, what the yield is, what the discount is. And the point is, is what you're trying to do is you're either trying to get interest or you're buying it with very low risk where you have a 90-10 or a 10-90 mortgage. So you have 90% equity, 10% debt. Well, there's very low risk there. They're going to pay you off because otherwise you're going to get their house for 10 cents on the dollar. So they know that. So that's very low risk of them not paying you. So you want to find deals that are low risk that pay you good interest. Now, there are some people that are loan sharks and they'll effectively take any deal as long as basically the collateral, which is the real estate in this case, the collateral is what happens if you don't pay. If I loan you money, Barb, and you're going to give me A mortgage on your house. And let's say I'm going to loan you 10% and you're going to take it and then you don't pay me. So now I can foreclose on you and get your house for 10 cents on the dollar. That's very unlikely you're not going to pay me because of the nature of that setup. But it's possible that somebody could do that, which means that my security is strong. I know you're going to pay me because you don't want to lose your house for 10 cents on the dollar. That would be really silly. So I know you're going to pay me. But if you don't, I'm definitely getting my money back for sure, because there's a lot of equity in that house that I can use to get my money back. So when people are loaning out money, the security or the collateral is really important. And you want to make sure that collateral is solid and it's not flimsy. So some people would say, oh, I'll give you an 80-20 because the banks do it. Yeah. But what if the real estate market goes down 10 or 20 percent what if you can't sell it what about the cost and what about this and what about that and people don't think about that so you can go to a marketplace most people that are selling these they're buying them and then selling them to someone else and maybe they're a good deal maybe they're not you always have to be wary of that but go to a local real estate meeting real estate meetup one of the knee rig or the, the reig i think is what they're called real estate investment groups they're all over the place all over the country There's going to be some sharks there, so you got to watch out. But there's also a lot of just mom and pop, everyday investors that are looking to to get rid of their notes or whatever they're looking to do. So it makes sense to understand what you're investing in. But with these notes, there is definitely risk. But once you do your homework up front, most of the work is done because there's not much you can do after that. You just sit there and collect your checks unless they don't pay you, which case you got to do more work. But otherwise, you do all the work up front to make sure that. It's a good risk. It makes sense. And if something goes wrong, and I always price things in as if something's going to go wrong every single time. What if they don't pay me? What if something goes wrong? How's it going to work? And if you know that, everything else is easy. So that's how I look at it. So Barb, you said you've done some of these notes, right? No,
2: I have not done notes. I've done a lot of real estate investing. I've fixed and flipped. I've managed large apartment complexes with, my company has, with a management company. And I have actually, the beginning of my career in my 20s, I was a real estate agent. So I was also involved from that end, from buying and selling. I've owned real estate. I love real estate as an alternative asset class. I think by the nature of it, first of all, there's a limited amount of land. So whenever there's a limit limit, on the supply, ultimately the price will go up. Not in a straight line, but real estate is great. And there's so many different alternative ways that you can do real estate from notes to commercial funds and REITs, like you said, Personally, now, at my stage, I like REIT, but you can get into completely all-diversified or you can go into a REIT with, say, just storage units or just student loan housing. And for people that don't want to do all the due diligence and just want to do some minor research and don't want to check out these private managers, REITs are a decent alternative if you want cash flow and growth. Real estate, I would say, is probably the biggest alternative investment class there is. A lot of different ways to get involved. The bottom line, though, with alternatives is you have to be willing to understand what you're investing in. There's no easy way to get around investing in an alternative. You have to know who is selling it, what the platform is, what is the potential return. And that was one of the things with Josh. He talked about the coffee offering and he said, Well, we're expected a 60% return. Well, anytime I hear a 60% return, I think, Well, tell me about the downside. Okay. Because that is way outside the parameters of what a typical investment return will offer. I'm not saying it never happens, but I am always speculative when I hear, you know, high double digit returns.
1: You raised a great point, Barb, and I want to kind of ask you some more questions about it. So if you're looking at investment, and the way I look at investments is you look at investment, you look at everything else. And if something seems off, the question you should be asking is, what am I missing? Because the market is more or less efficient. It's not completely efficient, like the textbooks tell you, but it's more or less efficient. So if you see like real estate, 10%, 10%, 10%, and then you see 50%, you got to ask yourself, why is it 50%? Because if it was 50, someone else is going to pick that up. So it's something like this. It raises the question, though, Barb, because this is a private company. So I know they're investing in real estate with farmland, but it's a company. So companies come with their own set of risks. Would you consider investing in private companies? I mean, knowing that there could be some great returns ahead and obviously some risks as well.
2: Many people do that. And many people are very willing to do that. And it depends on your own investment philosophy. So, maybe 20, 30 years, I might have gone that route. Right now, no, because the stage of life that I am in now is I want my investing to be less time consuming. I want my investing to deliver a certain rate of return, cash flow with modest appreciation. I'm not looking to beat the market. I am looking to just match the market and spend as small amount of time on my investments as I can. So for me, that's a no. I have a lot of friends who do venture capital, who do private investing, and what they say is the rule of thumb is, and what the common theory is, you can't invest in one company. Because that is way too risky. You have to, if you're going to get into private investing, you have to have at least ten private investments, because in the most case, you're going to have a lot of losses. It's just the nature of private investing. But if you have one winner, that can outweigh all of your losses. So I can't even remember what you asked. Oh, you asked me would I invest in that? So. For me, no, but it's not to say I don't think it's a legitimate route for someone who really, was interested in this niche of the investment markets. It's legitimate, but it's much more time-consuming. It's much more active. And I have to tell you, most of the apps that I look at, I review a lot of these apps that are open for both accredited and non-accredited investors. And I look at who's running them and what their experience is. And I'm appalled at the positive experience of some of these people that are good salespeople, good marketers, but don't have the chops to manage these types of investments.
1: It's interesting. looking at private companies. There's a lot of skill that goes in that is not academic-based. You could learn whatever you want in school, but... You're not going to understand how to run a company just because you've got an MBA. It certainly will help. It's better than nothing. You know, you see successful people, you know, the successful people, they're successful. Like they know how to run a company, they know how to get stuff done. And then there's other people that are smart that don't run a successful company for whatever reason.
2: You know, Kirk, there's one thing I want to say. If there's a 60% return on investment, my thinking is, if I can get a 60% return on investment, why would I sell that? I'd invest in all of it myself. So I'd borrow the money at, you know, whatever, 10% or whatever to do the entire investment myself. If I'm so sure, why would I even open that up to investors? If I can get a 60% return or a 50% or a 30 or a 40%.
1: So that's a great question. And actually, let's talk about that for a little bit before we wrap it up. So it's a great question because that is the exact kind of question you should be asking as you're looking at investments. If this is so good, why do you need my money? Most people look at it and say, how can I give you my money? Right? They just can't wait to get rid of their money and give it to you if you're selling that. But the reality is you should be asking, well, if it's so good, why do you need me? Why don't you just do it all yourself? Most of the answers are if you're running a fund. The idea is they're trying to leverage up other people's money to do more and to get it bigger and do more. So that's frequently what happens. I will tell you one of the most common things we get pitched a lot with alternative funds and 99% of them are garbage. They might be fine, but I wouldn't touch them. For an example, some of the questions, somebody might come to me and say, oh, well, how about this for your clients? Okay, how long have you been doing this? But my favorite question is, How much of your money do you have in this?
2: Well, and the other thing is, because I've asked that to countless companies and they give you their response. Oh, you know, 50% of my net worth is in this or 100% of my money is in this. Can you verify that? No, you cannot. And that's something to be concerned with, because I could say, I mean, you know what the right answer is, how much of your money is invested in this? Oh, the majority of my money, 75, 80% of my entire net worth is invested in this. But you don't know that.
1: There actually are some ways to sort of verify it. If you want to go down that road, like you could get an accountant to certify it, their accountant. I mean, most accountants won't do it anyway, even if it's true. But it's one path you could do. But pretty much in this due diligence process with private companies, there's no certainties. You know, there's a handful of certainties, but for the most part, there isn't. And the number one thing you should be looking for in a private company is the operator. Because if you don't trust the operator or the operator stinks at their job, it doesn't matter if you got a golden goose laying golden eggs, he'll end up stepping on the goose if the guy's an idiot. So you have to look at the person first. And if the person's a liar, if they're a thief, if they're, questionable. It's just not a good idea. As you said, Barb, like there's no way to verify that, but there are questions you can ask. And I think the, how much money of your own. So I'll give you an example. So I asked one guy a bunch of years ago, he was selling mobile home parks and he was on all the podcasts. So I interviewed him. I won't say what his name is, but I interviewed him and I said, all right, so what do you like about these? And he's like, oh, I've been doing these for years. I did them in college. I got a bunch of my own. And I said, oh, great. Own the fund? He's like, no, I have my own. I was like, oh, well, why don't you just roll them into the fund? He's like, why would I do that? I was like, I don't know. Why would I give you my money? <laughs> you know, like if you're going to take the best stuff, put your money in it, and then put everybody else's money into the garbage stuff so you can leverage it and make fees on it, that was a deal killer. I mean, I wasn't totally serious about it, but I was looking at it because I like the asset class. And he said that. And I was like, that's ridiculous. You're going to cherry pick the best stuff for yourself and you can put everybody else in the other stuff. Like that in itself, there's nothing illegal about that. But if I'm looking at a manager, I want to be able to trust that person. And if they're going to cherry pick the best stuff for themselves, not put their money in it. His answer to your point, Barb, he said, oh, I've got like 90% of my wealth in mobile home parks. I'm like, yeah, but what about this fund? (laughs) You know, How much of your money do you have in this fund? What that filter will do is it'll filter out a lot of the How do I characterize it? There are a lot of people out there who are doing something, whatever it is. Maybe they're a real estate investor. Maybe they're really good at making MRI machines, whatever it is. There's some category that they're really good at. And then they read an article and realize, hey, if I created a fund, I could make 10 times the money because I could take other people's money and keep doing the same thing I'm doing. They don't know how to run a fund. They just know how to do that one thing. Running a fund is very different. The skill set is different. And I've seen a lot of people who had some success in biotech and they're like, oh, I'm going to start up fund and buy up small biotech companies. They have no idea what they're doing to buy biotech companies. They just had some success and they're not even the CFO. So they think, oh, it's going to be easy. I know some people and they have some deals. And then on top of that, they don't know how to run a fund and they wanted money. I was like, no you don't have anybody with any experience running a fund none of you have really considered like running a biotech company you just happened to be a part of one when it was sold and made some money like there's nothing here that's appealing other than a great hopium dream of owning a biotech company that goes up a 100,000 fold so when you look at these things you have to be really discerning about the ones you invest in because once you put your money down you can't get it out until it's sold or goes bankrupt, or gets you know IPO, or whatever the exit is, that money is frozen. So you have to make good decisions up front. So I think a lot of the questions you ask up front are really important. The way you think about it is really important. You should go into any sort of conversation with a no on the tip of your tongue, and let them convince you otherwise. That should be your first gut reaction is a no. So as we kind of wrap it up here, final thoughts from you, Barb?
2: Alternatives are a viable and interesting option for investors, but you have to realize they are riskier and less liquid than your typical stocks, bonds, and cash. So should you choose to invest in one of the multiple types of alternatives out there, be aware that you want to be diversified. You want to make sure that you only put a small portion of your total investable assets in that alternative and that you consider having more than just one alternative in your portfolio because the likelihood that it will be locked up for a long time, it has a greater likelihood of going to zero than your other types of investments. And although stock investments can decline, believe me, I've invested in scores of stocks over the years, and the majority of them have had very nice returns in cash flow, but there have been a handful that have gone and dropped 75%. Has it freaked me out? The first time, yeah, a little. But over the long haul, no, because I knew going in, that was a possibility. And I also knew that I didn't invest more than I was willing to lose in that singular investment. In other words, I just invested a small portion of my investable assets. So thank you so much for listening. I am Barbara Friedberg. You can find me at Barbara Friedberg Personal Finance on YouTube and at pros. See you next time.
1: Thanks for coming on, Barb. I'm about to head back out to my backyard rink and uh, just skate with my boys, which as this episode comes out, most likely we'll still have that because it'll be February. So that's the show for this week. Thank you again for joining us, Money Tree Investing Podcast. My name is Kirk Chisholm, Wealth Manager of Innovative Advisor Group. We don't just manage your wealth, we make your life better. You can find more about me at InnovativeWealth.com. And of course, you can find me every week here on the show. Please subscribe to the podcast and the podcast app of your choosing. You can also check out our show at MoneyTreePodcast.com. On our website, you'll have access to our show notes, resources, and the archive shows. Also, we're now on YouTube, so please check out our YouTube channel. When you're there, please subscribe and leave a comment. Lastly, please leave a show rating and comment on the podcast app of your choice. Oh, and don't forget, do your own research. This show is for informational use only. We're not telling you what to think, merely how to think about investing. We're not selling any products or services, so do not consider this advice. If you have any problems with the show, I blame Putin, assuming he's still around. So please call him directly and express your feelings. If you're seeking financial advice, talk to an oracle, fortune teller, or maybe a financial advisor. I'm one, but as I said, I'm not selling anything, but I'm easy to find. Have a great week ahead. And remember, no one will care about your money like you do. So invest in your life. Thank you for listening to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Visit us at MoneyTreePodcast.com for more free investing resources.